We are beginning a, a new series today called Generosity Speaks. And the reason that we chose that title is that if you have ever hung around a person that is generous in any way, shape, or form, time, money, resources, wisdom, love, whatever it may be, there is a, a way, there is a, um, a theme that just kind of comes out of that life. And over these next few weeks, we just want to highlight this theme. And I want to do it, I want to begin this by looking at, at a group of men who live in a neighborhood in Utah. So this is from the CBS News, I think a few months ago. So take a look at this, if you would, please. For most of us, being a good neighbor means loaning a stick of butter, maybe the occasional social visit. Hello. How are you, Kathy? But Kathy Felt of Sandy, Utah says whatever your standard, it pales compared to what her neighbors did for her. What was your reaction? I cried. Just like now. I was so moved. It's my miracle. Kathy's miracle began about 10 years ago. Her MS had progressed to the point where she couldn't even get into bed. And since she lived alone, the only logical long-term solution seemed to be a nursing home. Until one day, the guy next door came over and presented Kathy with a list. A list of about 60 men from the neighborhood who were willing to come over Hi, Kathy. in teams of two to put Kathy to bed. Take off her slippers, take off her socks. One guy gets on one side and one guy gets on the other side. Three. Lift her up, put her on the bed. <laughs> it's a process. You gotta have a pillow under this foot. Things need to be just so. She finally says, I feel good. Perfect. Pull the covers up and she's tucked in for the night. We leave the kiss out. Yeah, yeah good, okay. <laughs> Kathy's two sons and an aide help her in the morning. But this nightly ritual has been going on seven days a week Good luck, for 10 years now. We're going to be here as long as she needs us. Keith Pugmire is the main organizer. Our challenge is to get everybody a time. Wait, wait, wait. You've got more volunteers than you need? Yeah. What kind of neighborhood is this? This is a great neighborhood. <laughs> Clearly. There's some houses for sale you want to move in. <laughs> Before you call a realtor, though, one caveat. When Keith first started soliciting volunteers, he says not everyone was a natural Florence Nightingale. I can't say I was excited. I'll, t I'll tell you that. Coming into somebody's home, it's a woman. And I have no health care background at all. Here's that. Here's your phone. There was definitely an evolution. And it was most evident in this man. Did you want to do this? His name is John Keller. No. John now admits. The only reason he agreed to help Kathy was because he knew he would look bad if he didn't. That's hard for me to say. I had always considered myself the good person, Christian. Then I realized maybe I'm not. I wanted to be a better person. Today, John says the simple act of lifting Kathy week after week has made him a profoundly better person. A good reminder that burdens are sometimes blessings in disguise. Yeah, no problem. Hey, anytime. So I appreciate that story. There are thousands of them like it, which is what makes that a cool story. Some of them close by. And uh, when you and I go through life, we appreciate the people who come alongside us to lift us, don't we? I love that little sign that they highlight on the wall, lift to be lifted. 
And a generous person, sometimes we think money, and it certainly has to do with money, but oftentimes a generous person is simply a person who comes along and lifts your life when you need it. Maybe it's the lift of a financial boost, or they support an organization that does great things or, or helps people, or, or they come along with an encouraging word, or they come along at just the right time to love you and encourage you to, to teach you or to show you grace at the right time. They lift you. Um, and so today, we begin this series for the next couple of weeks here, just called Generosity Speaks. And, and what I do, don't want you to think about as we do this, sometimes when the preacher preaches about generosity, uh, the assumption is, well, the budget must be tight, so we've got to preach about generosity. And, and I want you to know that that has nothing to do with this. In fact, you all give very well, and, and the budget is fine, and there's a great group of team, a team of people that, that work with the money that you give to make sure it goes as far as it possibly can to serve Christ and his kingdom. And this series is not about that. This series, I hope it translates into all of us being more generous with everything in our life. But really, it's not about the, the giving part, although that, that's a fruit of it. This series is more about the joy of being generous. The joy that you just saw in those guys who, who although it started awkwardly, they learned the joy of just lifting someone in their life by being generous with time, by being generous with their willingness to help. And I pray that there's not a hint of guilt that comes from me, at least in this. And if God convicts you and leads you to something, then that's up between you and him. But I don't want to use guilt to do this. And so it's my hope over the next few weeks that you will um, be full of a joy to be more generous with your life. And that may involve all kinds of things. In fact, Jesus once told the parable that it really is at the heart of what we want to do here these next couple of weeks. He told this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It is my prayer for us that as we grow in joy for Jesus and the joy of seeing him served and his kingdom grow and, and his church do well in the world, I pray that as that joy grows within us, that it will not just touch one part of our life, but it will touch every part of our life. And I love the words in that phrase, in that par those parables twice, that they both went and they sold all they had. They sold everything. Everything was in on the joy of having this prize. And Jesus is like that. And so when we talk about generosity that speaks, I hope that as Christians, the generosity that, that speaks through our life is a joy that is driven by Jesus. And I would just say as a preacher, it is fun to watch you all be generous with your time, with your talents and your resources and different things. This past Wednesday night was a good example of that. We had our fall festival um, and Tessa and her planning crew did an awesome job of preparing a fun night, an alternative um, for Halloween. And, and um, they were creative and they worked hard and did a good job with that. And all of you came along with the different things that you were able to do. And some of you brought candy and some of you brought yourselves. And, and you sat at a booth and, and helped little kids have a good time and interacted with their families. Um, some of you brought animals to be pet or to be ridden. Uh, Morris built an awesome hay maze that I wish was still there today because we could go do that after church. It was fun. Uh, it was a fun night connecting with our community. And we had a 
couple hundred, 250 people came through, and, and it was just a good night. But it happened because not just one person, because a lot of people were generous in different ways. Last week, we asked you to give to our joy jar uh, to help a family in our church, and, and you did that. If you've seen the bulletin, 600 bucks came in for that, and you gave generously and joyfully, and, and uh, a good thing will happen in the life of a family over these next few weeks because of that. And so over the years I've been here, um, I've been blessed to see how you all continue to step up to meet a need when it comes. And so I want to encourage that. I want us to find a joy in saying, man, look what God can do when not just one of us, but when all of us come alongside of one another and we release our time, we release our resources, we release our energy, we release our talents, and just God does some really cool things through that. And so what I want us to do today is just simply ask the question, where do generous people come from? Where do they come from? Are they just born that way and there's generous people that are born that way and stingy, um, grumpy people that are born the other way? I don't think so. That may be some, some of your DNA may have something to do with it, but I don't think so. But I think that you find where generous people come from as you hang out with them. And you begin to listen to them. And you begin to just observe what they think and how they act and the way they process life and, and the things that are at their disposal. See, when you hang around generous people, you begin to find the answer to that question. And, and it really begins with this little statement that we're going to look at here today. And it's this little statement that generous people tend to find, you find them saying this a lot. And it's this, it's, it's the least I can do. The generous people, you'll find them as you listen to, when they, when they do something, when they invest time, or when someone asks them, well, why did you do that, or why did you give that, or why would you do that, somewhere deep inside of them, the thought is, well, it's the least I can do. And that statement assumes some things about the way they're looking at life, doesn't it? They're assuming that something has been done to them, for them, and so because of the goodness that's been shown to them, that the least that they can do is turn around and do that for someone else. Generous people think and speak that way about what motivates them towards generosity. I've been so blessed, and so the least that I can do is. Or I've been helped in so many ways, and so the least that I can do is. I've been given so many second chances, and so the least that I can do is. And so Jesus illustrates this theme, and it's... Um, and it's contrasting attitude in a story, in an encounter he has that's recorded for us in the book of Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open there with me as we read that along. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Um, it's a story of Jesus being invited into the home of a man. In verse 36, where it introduces us to the main characters of our story, when it says, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, again, just get the mental picture of what's about to happen. Remember, in Jesus' times, they didn't sit at chairs with their feet under the table. They would recline on their side and lean into the table, and their feet would be extended behind them. And so, in that posture, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And so that introduces us to our characters, the Pharisee, whose name is Simon, we'll meet here in a moment, uh, Jesus, and this woman. And as she stood behind him at his feet, it goes on to say, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So she comes emotional. She comes with something that she is carrying that when she's in the presence of Jesus, she breaks down and begins to cry. 
And so as she's crying her tears and they're falling on his feet, she wipes them with her hair and then kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. Now imagine this scene, right? You're at supper and someone comes in with a large perfume bottle. It's sometimes terrible when someone sprays their cologne and everybody coughs and that smell fills the room and, and this woman is crying, which would have been an awkward thing for people to, and not only just crying, but uh, the tears on his feet and kissing his feet. This would have been a very uncomfortable scene to be at. And so different people around the room are processing this awkward moment in different ways. Verse 39 says, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to his home, he said to himself in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so he's making assumptions about this woman. He's probably observed her life for whatever way, shape, or form. And he has a pretty harsh response, both towards her, and he also diminishes Jesus, who claims to be a prophet. But if he knew he was a prophet, he would never have anything to do with someone like that. And so Jesus, in verse 40, says something to Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love the master more? Well, Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and, and said to Simon, and, and I like the, the, the perspective there. He looks at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Which is the most obvious question in the whole text, right? Of course, everybody sees this woman, right? She's the center of attention here. I came into your house, and it was customary in this culture that when someone came into your home, uh, you would give them a place to wash their feet, to, to clean themselves up in a hot, dry, dusty climate. That would be a, a common courtesy. But I came into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which would have been a common form of Arab greeting, to kiss on the cheek. Um, but this woman, from the time I, I entered, has not stopped not kissing my cheek, but kissing my feet. Very humble act. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and as great and as, and her, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So we read that story and, and you think about what it's telling us. And we think about this woman and the sacrifices that she made in the course of this text. There were financial sacrifices. That perfume was expensive. A valuable gift could have done a lot of different things. But it's used as an act of worship. There's the public standing she would have lost. She was already probably looked down on by many, especially the Pharisee class. But from this point forward, not only was she whatever her sin was, she would also be shamed and thought of poorly by anyone who was at that dinner because of her behavior there. But what was forefront in her mind? What was driving her to do things, to sacrifice, to be generous with what she had, uh, to, to forget what other people think and say, you know what, I'm going to love and worship Jesus? I think in her mind, it's this simple thought of I want to worship, I want to thank, and I want to surrender my life as broken and as messed up as it is I want to surrender that to Jesus. And in a lot of ways, her thinking is simply this. It's this, the least I can do. It's the least I can do. 
Nobody else gives me the time of day. <laughs> no one else shows me any kind of respect. No one else thinks I'm worth anything, but Jesus does. And because he loves me, and because he treats me with respect, the least that I can do is worship him and show him how much he means to me. And so when you hear people say the phrase, it's the least I can do, that's a statement of humility, isn't it? That's a statement of, I have been treated so well by God, by others, by someone, that the least that I can do is pass it on or show my gratitude to God or to other people. Even if it's a sacrifice, it isn't a sacrifice anymore. This woman would not have looked at her perfume and, and her act and said, well, that wasn't a sacrifice. That was an act of love, right? And that's what, and Christmas is coming, uh, to, to the terror of some of us. Uh, and we're going to go buy gifts for some of the people that we really love and some we don't like as much. But we're going to buy gifts for people that we really love. And, and that's not a sacrifice in that situation, is it? It's because it's, it's something you do out of love. It's because it's the least I can do to show them I love them. And so when you think of that statement, it's the least I can do, there's an ironic statement that is similar to it that the other half of people in the world use. You see, people that are grateful and humble, they use that phrase, it's the least I can do. The people who tend to be more self-centered or stingy or loveless or greedy say a very similar statement, but they change a word. It goes from it's the least I can do to this. What's the least I can do? Yeah, you've been around stingy people who just want to get by with the basics, right? Kid, when you did chores as a kid, I just want to do the very basic I can do, right? How many dishes do I have to put away before I can leave the room and leave them for somebody else, right? Um, not that that's happened in my life in the last few hours, but, but the, you all know that, right? We've all been in those places where our mo motivation, our actions, our thought processes were, I don't want to be here, I don't want to do this, what's the least I can do so I can get out of here? and do something that's more interesting to me. There's an old story that I was reminded of this week about a king who was coming to visit a certain land. And the people of the land and the town were so excited that a king would grace their little village with his presence. They wanted to find a way to honor him, and so they decided to, to do so by giving him the very best of the wine that they could produce in their, in their community. So every person was to bring one cup of their best wine from home, and they all would put it in one big barrel in the center of the town. And when the king came, he would come and he would taste the best wine from all the people that had been collected in the barrel. Well, one person thought, well, if everybody else is bringing their best, then I can get by with just bringing water. It won't make a difference mixed in with the hundreds of other people who will bring their very best. But then the king arrived and tasted the wine, and he discovered that it was all water, and the king was not honored. You see, some people spend their lives asking, what's the least I can do? And that comes from a certain kind of heart. That comes from a heart that is self-centered, that is maybe entitled, It feels like I deserve more. Um, it's ungrateful in many ways. But others spend their lives regularly sacrificing all that they are to God as our king. And they simply do it if you ask them, it's the least I could do. It's the least I could do for a God who would love me as God has loved me through Christ. And so there's a connection I just want you to consider with me here this morning. Um, the simple connection is this. It's the connection between a grateful heart and a generous heart. Uh, the connection between 
uh, gratefulness and generosity because the two go hand in hand. And in fact, I should have made more than just an arrow. I should have made a cycle um, that generosity or gratefulness tends to breed generosity and generosity tends to breed more gratefulness and gratefulness tends to breed more generosity. And, and once you get that cycle started in your life, your life becomes a very life-giving uh, thing to other people. They go together and so if you spend your life as one of the what's the least I can do crowd, that's a pretty good indicator of an ungrateful heart. A heart that hasn't stopped to really drill into the fact that everything I have is blessed to me by God or it's given to me by others or, or it has come to me through the kindness or the partnership of other people. And so I want to just finish today by looking at a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you read the whole chapter, you'll find that Paul um, mentions many warnings and, and helpful things about how we process the blessings, the stuff of our life, but I want to highlight a few of them. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So what's Paul reminding us of? That, that all this stuff is temporary, but what do we tend to make it? He goes on to finish, but we have food and clothing. We'll be content with that, which is a major statement in and of itself for us to pursue. But verse 9 goes on to say, but those who want to make this temporary stuff the thing that life is all about, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In other words, when, when stuff, when it becomes about how do I get more for me, how do I make this about me, life can become a pretty ugly place. But then Paul, at the end of that chapter in verse 17, gives us a bit of advice and some help. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Now let's pause there a second, because some of you are saying, Phew, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. I'm just a middle person. I, I'm not a rich person. But I would just challenge you to go on, begin to look at, at where you rank and find your salary and, and just rank that compared to what most of the world is. I think the stat I saw was if you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of income earners in the entire 7 billion people who live on this planet. So we should be careful about saying, well, I'm not one of those rich folks. That's, that's, this is for somebody else. Because rich tends to be a relative statement. Um, so let's just for fun, just imply that that's us, okay? Command those who are rich in this present world. And what's, what does riches do to us? It makes us arrogant and it causes us to put our hope, our trust in what we have, in our wealth. And so what does money do to us? Andy Stanley uses the illustration of, of acrobats or skaters or, or dancers who, who start to do one of those fancy spins. You ever watch the Olympics and those people are spinning really, really fast? And most of us are thinking, man, if I did that, I think I would puke, right? Because they're spinning so fast and, and yet there's a, an energy to that that they learn over time to balance that. But money, wealth, possessions can, can have that kind of dizzying effect upon us as well. And if we don't learn how to master that first, everything about our money is going to begin to, almost like the, a gravitational pull is going to draw us towards, well, I have more, so I begin to feel more arrogant about myself. Or I have more, and so I begin to build that, my security around that. But then Paul goes on to give us 
a word of advice in verse 17 when he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And you're thinking, okay, that's great. I love that. That's helpful advice, Paul, to, to don't, don't get arrogant, don't get cocky because I've got some, a few things. Continue to think, well, man, the least I can do is, is share, give, whatever, use it for others or for some good cause. But what does that mean? What does it mean to put your hope in God? Well, he doesn't leave you without an answer. The very next verse, verse 18 and 19, he gives specific things. This is how you fight that pull towards arrogance. This is how you fight that pull towards trusting in good deeds. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, not, not your bank account, but how many good things are you doing with what you have, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, you lay up treasures for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so Paul calls us to be intentional, to say, you know what, if I'm going to be the kind of person who lives with a, well, it's the least I can do because God has been so good to me. As you read those verses, what are some things you draw out? Well, I've got to be intentional on remembering and looking at the stuff that I have and the, the opportunities in my life, the talents that are before me, the things that I have control over, I have to be intentional to remember those have come by the gift and grace of God. I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing. And the stuff that I accumulate in the middle is, is given to me, not just for me, but I have to be intentional to remember it's a gift from God, as was said earlier in the service, that I get to steward. And we'll look more at that next week. Uh, but the whole idea of, of how we think about it, it is a gift. And people who live with a, what's well, the least I can do, they know that. They know that everything has come to them came through gifts and through grace and through, I don't know why I was born, where I was born, when I was born. Just happened to fall in the place that has the, the most stuff in the history of the world. I don't know why I was born at this time, but I was. And so it's not about me. It's about what I do with what I have. And so it's a thinking process, but it's also action, isn't it? When he tells us to be rich in good deeds, to do good, to be generous, to intentionally go find places. And as we're going to look next week, we're going to use a phrase called create a gap between what you have and what you could have. To create a gap in there that says, you know what? If I just live to the margins of what everything I have, it's all about me. But when I give, when I share, when I'm generous, I create a gap that, that has lots of benefits to it. We'll see. But one of those benefits is that it's, I'm reminded this isn't about me, that everything I have is a gift from God, not just for me, but so that I can do good with it in the world. And so he encourages us to do good, to be good with what we have. And so I would just simply finish with this encouragement and a question for you this morning. As you think in this season of year, of the year, when you start to kind of process your blessings and think about what you have and give, give an inventory of, of your blessings, I would just ask that you to think, as you think about what God is asking you to do with that or those opportunities or your talents or your wisdom or your love even, do you approach life with a selfish perspective that says, well, what's the least I can do to get away with, to make me look good, to make other people think maybe good of me, kind of like Simon in the story? Or am I like the woman who's broken before Jesus, who understands that it's all a gift of grace? And the only thing, the only proper response when you understand that everything that you have is a gift of grace is to simply say, God, it's the least I can do for what you have done for me and what you've provided for me and what you have done for me in my salvation through Christ on the cross. Uh, it's the least I can do. 
And may we be a group of people who grow to be more and more, it's the least I can do, kind of people.